Hey, it's Rick Kettner here, and today we're gonna go through the six books that I read in May 2022. As usual, we'll talk a little bit about why I chose to read these books and what you can expect to get out of them. That way you can decide whether or not they are a fit for you. Let's begin with book number one, Build, An Unorthodox Guide to Making Things Worth Making by Tony Fidel. This is a brand new book that I've been very curious to check out ever since I heard it was going to be released. For those of you who may not know who Tony Fidel is, he was a major force behind products like the iPod and then later the iPhone. Eventually he left Apple and co-founded Nest, which of course made the very popular Nest home thermostat and later the Nest Protect smoke alarm system, two products that in many ways kind of kicked off the whole idea of the connected home. Later, Nest was acquired by Google for, I believe, $3.2 billion around 2014. And since that time, Tony has decided to move on and is no longer working for Google. But with all of that said, when I heard about this book, as someone who absolutely loves putting together products and services, I was very curious to check this out and to get Tony's unique perspective on the whole process involved in building out either a product or a service. And I'm happy to say the book does not disappoint. It covers all kinds of practical and helpful information around how to build better products and services. It's very inspirational, it's very thought-provoking, and just very grounded in terms of providing helpful, practical advice. Now, I will say much of the advice is focused on startup founders or, for example, product managers within a larger organization. But the core foundational ideas can really apply to anybody trying to build a product or a service, including whether you're an individual contributor on a team who eventually wants to move up in an organization or perhaps build your own startup at some point in the future. And I would say even solo entrepreneurs who are just trying to build a product. Some of the advice won't necessarily apply to you, but many of the core ideas from the book will be helpful. So if, like me, you're interested in discovering ways to build products and services that are more likely to succeed, then I highly recommend you consider reading Build by Tony Fidel. Next up we have This Is How They Tell Me The World Ends, The Cyber Weapons Arms Race by Nicole Perlroth. This book is about the rapid advancement of cyber threats and the ever-growing possibility of death and destruction due to cyber weapons. Very interesting book. Talks a lot about early hacker culture. It talks about the growing number of risks within software and hardware, the various exploits that are becoming available, and how both governments and big business are reacting to the discovery of these kinds of vulnerabilities. For example, when it comes to governments, they tend to hoard vulnerabilities they can use them to potentially spy on threats or other risks like that. Whereas big businesses have traditionally actually punished hackers for identifying and publishing information about vulnerabilities, even though oftentimes this was done in an effort to help businesses patch those exploits. But there's just this awkward back and forth where hackers are identifying risks, governments are trying to hoard them as secrets, and then businesses are punishing anyone that kind of lets the public know just how many risks or threats there may be with their various products and services. Of course, today, technology is being relied on to do more and more in society. All kinds of really critical infrastructure, including power grids, oil production, communication systems, shipping and logistics, all kinds of systems like this are increasingly relying on technology. And as a result, there's this ever-expanding attack surface for those that are able to use vulnerabilities to attack these kinds of systems. 
And all of this isn't without precedent. In fact, famously, the U.S. used these kinds of exploits to derail Iran's nuclear ambitions. And ever since that occurred, governments around the world kind of realized the power of these kinds of exploits and have started to hoard what are called zero-day exploits, which allow for things like silently spying on smartphones, disabling power grids, altering elections, and all kinds of things like this that can cause havoc. And effectively, we have this new kind of arms race for who can maintain the largest stockpile of potential vulnerabilities, both to potentially use on offense or to use as a defensive measure in case other countries end up attacking their power systems or their oil production or things like that. So if, like me, you're interested in understanding the many implications of cyber threats and exploits and getting a sense of how things might play out in the future, consider reading This Is How They Tell Me The World Ends by Nicole Perlroth. Next up, we have Corruptible, Who Gets Power and How It Changes Us by Brian Kloss. This book takes on the very popular notion that power corrupts people. More specifically, it talks about how we can create a system that attracts incorruptible or at least less corruptible people. Now, of course, the idea of corruption when it relates to power is nothing new. However, this seems to be kind of a theme that is growing in popularity or growing in awareness again lately, perhaps in part due to the advent of social media and things like increased reporting on politicians and other people in power. So when I saw this book, I thought it might be worth checking out just to get a broad sense or a broad understanding of how corruption tends to operate and how we might avoid it. Now, this book tackles four essential questions. Do worse people get power? Does power make people worse? Why do we let people control us who clearly have no business being in control? And how can we ensure that incorruptible people get into power and wield it justly? Early on, the book pokes holes in the popular belief that power necessarily corrupts. In fact, it points out flaws in various studies that have supported this notion, such as the Stanford prisoner experiment in which students were assigned to either be prisoners or prison guards, and the study pointed out that depending on which group the students were assigned to, their behavior would change dramatically. Well, this book analyzes that study and talks about some of the issues in terms of how they recruited people and other factors like that that might have altered the outcome. And effectively, the author makes the case that power doesn't necessarily corrupt people. And there are, in fact, things that we can do to attract less corruptible people, including things like framing the role differently or making sure that we're finding ways to attract as many candidates as possible. And this is important because when it comes to how we frame the role or the position, for example, if an advertisement for a police department shows people in military fatigues and taking on military training and that sort of thing, as opposed to showing someone serving their community, you can imagine how that kind of ad would attract very different candidates depending on which direction they went in. And when it comes to attracting more candidates, this is really important because the more candidates you have applying for a role, the easier it is to hold higher standards and to be more selective. Whereas if you have very few people applying, you really don't have that option. You can't be picky. You just have to accept the people who are applying. So those are two examples of things that can really help attract less corruptible people. If you frame the position correctly, and if you make sure that you're attracting as many candidates as possible, well, you're far more likely to get the right kind of people and to be able to choose the right kind of people for 
for the position. So if, like me, you're interested in getting a better understanding of the many implications of corruption and how we can potentially attract less corruptible people, consider picking up a copy of Corruptible by Brian Kloss. Next up, we have The Madness of Crowds, Gender, Race, and Identity by Douglas Murray. Every once in a while, I pick up a book largely based on an assumption about what the book is about. I read the title, I draw my own conclusion, and then I just blindly dive in if it seems like it might be interesting. And that's exactly what happened with this book. I'd heard about it. I knew it was a somewhat popular book. I read the title. I unfortunately skipped the all-important subtitle, and I assumed the book was about mob mentality or groupthink or just that idea that we tend to behave or act very differently when we're part of a crowd. Now, as it turns out, the book is related to those topics, but it's much more focused. It's primarily talking about identity politics, and more specifically, it offers up a pretty sharp critique about the identity politics movement. Now, as someone who grew up in Canada and actually dropped out of high school in grade 11 to pursue business, I never went to college, I never went to university, and as a result, I consider myself somewhat sheltered when it comes to various movements around race, gender, sexual orientation. Of course, I'm against discrimination of all kinds, and yet I feel like I lack insights into the history and the politics of some of these movements, especially in the United States. Anyway, I found the book to be somewhat controversial, if only because the author is so blunt and aggressive in pointing out the many flaws and inconsistencies in the arguments and in the tactics being employed by those that are pushing identity-based agendas. For example, traditionally oppressed groups are trying to use the exact same tactics that have historically been used against them, such as silencing open debate and marginalizing other groups. In effect, they're perpetuating the exact same tactics that were used against them and in many cases are still being used against them rather than seeking genuine resolution. Now, in many ways, this reaction is very understandable, but it's unlikely to achieve the progress or the goal that they're trying to achieve as a group. Now, despite the aggressive tone, the author does seem genuinely sympathetic around the many issues relating to race, gender, and sexual orientation. The criticisms in this book are focused on the tactics and the strategies being used to push identity-based politics. So it's not about the people, it's about the strategies and how they most certainly won't lead to the outcomes that people are trying to achieve. Now, closer to the end of the book, I thought there was a very nice note about something we can all agree on, or at least all should be able to agree on. Here's the quote. Nobody with a competency to perform a task should ever be held back from achieving what they can achieve because of some characteristic over which they have no say. In effect, nobody should be prevented from entering a career or rising to the top of that career based on their race, gender, sexual orientation, or even religion. Now, of course, the challenge is figuring out a way to effectively achieve that without perpetuating a system that is destined to make the same mistakes only with other marginalized groups. So if you're interested in exploring some of the issues and some of the challenges behind identity-based politics, or if you just want a fresh perspective on some of these themes and topics, consider reading The Madness of Crowds by Douglas Murray. Next up, we have Cast, The Origins of Our Discontents by Isabel Wilkerson. 
This is a book that's been on my bookshelf for a few months now, but after reading The Madness of Crowds, I thought it would be the perfect time to dive into this book to get a bit of a counterbalance to the themes and the tone of that book. Now, I won't say that The Madness of Crowds is against racial progress, but it kind of takes the position that the issue is largely resolved, or at very least that much progress has already been made and that we don't need to completely rethink society to further address the problem. That's kind of the general theme behind Douglas Murray's book. So I wanted to dive into this book to get an alternative perspective to kind of balance out the two different views. This book is about the history of racism and the creation of a caste system based on race. It clarifies the difference between race and caste or between racism and casteism, and it goes on to explain how someone can be against racism and judging people based on the color of their skin or their ethnicity, but still take actions that support the caste system and effectively give their race or their group some preferential treatment or some advantages in life and in society. I found it really interesting to see how certain actions and certain behaviors that would traditionally be clearly labeled as racist could be re-understood as struggles for power and position in society. And when viewed in this light, it's easier to understand the incentives and the motivations, and in many ways, the fears that perpetuate racism and ultimately make it so difficult to deal with and to eliminate discrimination and inequality. The book goes on to explore caste systems from Nazi Germany, India, and the United States, and it draws comparisons and ultimately defines the eight common tenets of a caste system. So if, like me, you're interested in understanding the ongoing implications of racism and a race-based caste system, then I recommend that you read Caste by Isabel Wilkerson. Next up, we have All Joy and No Fun, The Paradox of Modern Parenthood by Jennifer Senior. This book is about the many challenges of raising children in a rapidly changing world. It tackles many interesting topics, including the division of labor between parents, the boundaries between home and work life, and the growing expectations on modern parents. One of the recurring themes in the book is just how different parenting is today compared with the past. There are fewer established norms, much of society is in flux, and parents have less support for a variety of factors. One example is the effects of sprawl, where we're closer than ever in many cases with our immediate neighbors, and yet we're further and further away from friends and family and other really vitally important relationships. Something I found very interesting is the balance that is needed between, on the one hand, giving our children every advantage in life and exposing them to interesting hobbies and activities and opportunities, and yet on the other hand, making sure that we don't burn out, that we can maintain our sanity as parents, and that we're not trying to do absolutely everything to the point that we hurt our relationship with our spouse or potentially with our kids or our friends, or just where we completely lose a sense of balance in life. Now. When it comes to these issues, there are no clear-cut answers, but I found the book very helpful and inspirational in recognizing these issues and trying to strike a better balance so that we avoid kind of what the title suggests, where we live this life where we have joy in seeing our kids reach various milestones and witnessing their different experiences, and yet, on the other hand, we can have this sharp reduction in fun and satisfaction in our own lives as a result from burnout and trying to do everything and be everything as a parent. So, if, like me, you want some inspiration and an interesting look at how to be a better parent without burning yourself out and being able to strike a better balance, then consider reading All Joy and No Fun by Jennifer Senior. 
Anyway, those are the six books that I read and enjoyed in May 2022. Click the like and subscribe buttons if you want more updates like this again in the future.